Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Anne-Marie Tierney, the founder and principal of Liquid Advisors and a seasoned financial services lawyer and strategist with substantial SEC law firm and in-house legal experience, as well as experienced in broker-dealer regulation, blockchain, legal and regulatory issues, securities transactional work, SEC's rules and regulations, corporate governance, and international expansion. Previously, she was the Chief Strategy Officer and General Counsel of Templum, a registered broker-dealer alternative trading system, Head of Strategy and NASDAQ Private Market, and General Counsel of Second Market, now Digital Currency Group. She was also at the SEC, Skadden Arps, the New York Stock Exchange, and NYFIX. Anne-Marie is a member of the Board of Directors of the Association of SEC Alumni and a former member of the SEC's Advisory Committee on Small and Emerging Companies. She also serves on the advisory boards of the Hack Fund Group, Pontoro and Estrella. In this podcast, we talk about her career, the evolution of secondary markets for private shares, and the crypto regulatory landscape. Please note that the episode was recorded on May 27th, before the current crypto market meltdown. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Anne-Marie, it is so good to have you in the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I remember us interacting back in the day. It must have been a decade ago already about secondary markets and uh, private markets. So a lot of the discussion that I have in this podcast is mostly on public markets, but you're a true specialist expert in private markets. So we're going to talk a lot about it, about the governance of this. Thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, Evan, I'm so delighted to be on the on the podcast with you and really happy to reconnect. It it has been a long time uh, that we've been kind of in this space um, in a direct or tangential way. So I'm pretty excited to talk about it with you today. All right. So usually I start with the personal and professional background of my guests. So why don't you tell us where you were born, where you grew up, and we'll go from there until your current role at Liquid Advisors. Sure. Well, I am uh, born and raised in the beautiful state of New Jersey. Um, I grew up at the Jersey Shore, not like the TV show, but like the real place where people <laughs> <laughs> live and, and have very nice lives. Um, I was a complete science geek in high school, so I ended up going to University of Delaware uh, to become a biology major. Um, halfway through college, I realized either I was going to fail out of organic chem 2, I wanted to be a research biologist, <laughs> Uh, or that I was going to spend the rest of my life pipetting things into a, in a research lab. And I thought that's probably not where I want to be anymore. So I switched to finance, um, which meant I was in college for five years. And when I gave my dad that really happy news, um, he basically hung up the phone on me, but was very supportive <laughs> after the fact. Um, so I, you know, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, I was thinking about grad school or law school. I decided to go to law school. Um, I went to Catholic University in D.C. Uh, they had a really strong feeder, feeder track into the Securities Exchange Commission. So I focused on securities law in law school. And then I got my first job in corporate at the SEC right out of law school. Best job I could have ever asked for. Hmm. Um, absolutely, you know, changed the, direct, the direction of my life. And uh, 
Anyway, so I spent six years at the SEC, five of them in international corporate finance, focusing on bringing international companies you know, into the U.S. markets. Um, Let's I'm stop a little bit there because yeah. that, it, it's non-trivial. That was the time when there were a lot of cross-listings uh, and companies doing the ADRs, uh, which is really interesting. Now, maybe because of the Chinese delisting and, and maybe that, that was the heyday, right? It was the heyday. Uh, Linda Quinn called us her, her chamber of commerce. <laughs> and, uh, you know, our job was to make it as easy as possible for large companies to list in the U.S. from around the world. And we had a very, very robust international listings team. Um, we spent a lot of time in international, uh, sorry, not listings teams, but focus on international companies. We spent um, a lot of time making sure rules were properly written and made sense and actually could be applied across um, multiple jurisdictions um, I remember I did the Daimler-Benz listing and uh, Linda Quinn, she was the director of Court Fitch, a wonderful woman. Um, she's passed uh, since, but she took my comment letter and marked it up and like deleted every comment that wasn't critically necessary <laughs> uh, from a transparent disclosure point of view. So it was a pretty good experience. And uh, yeah, we had a very significant rise in IPOs from international companies yeah, during that period of time, I was very proud of that. We worked on some great rule proposals, Rule 144A, uh, Regulation S. I was the point person for Reg S interps for a part of the time I was in um, in in the office, and uh, really met with regulators from around the world, comes around the world, um, helping them understand the benefits of listing in the United States. So I'm pretty yeah. proud, pr proud of that period of time in my life. Well, which is interesting to talk about that now because. We can say that was when markets were hyper-globalized and now we are retrenching in sort of a different direction. So so it's interesting from what's an historical perspective and let's see how it evolves. Uh, and then you you, you switch from uh, the SEC to Skadden. I did. Um, one of my uh, dear, dear friends, um, two bosses actually told me I needed to get out of the SEC and like go spread my wings. So... <laughs> Um, I ended up going to Skadden in London, uh, was my first uh, five years at Skadden, and kind of uh, the flip side of the coin, right, helping companies raise capital in the U.S., helping companies go public in the U.S. Um, I did some really interesting deals. Two of the bigger deals I worked on were for Russian companies, some of the first Russian wow. companies to list in the U.S. Um, one was a, a, an IPO for <laughs> a Russian oil and gas company called Tatneft uh -huh. and we were underwriters council. And what was really interesting there was like the auditors, which were KPMG, were trying to figure out how do you um, create audited financial statements where a significant part of a company's um, financial interactions were for barter. <laughs> yeah, hmm. So it was pretty exciting. Um, and then Ross Telecom, which was the Moscow based telecom company, we helped them go public. And that was interesting. And again, um, you know, living on the other side of the rules that I had helped write and mm -hmm. doing disclosure for an agency that I had been on the flip side, that was a really interesting experience. And kind of when I learned that, you know, if you're writing a rule, you really need to think about what you're writing and you really need to understand the implications of what you're writing. And you need to have, I didn't have any real world experience, right? I was just a kid out of mm -hmm. law school and I was helping frame rulemaking. And it really made me realize how important it is to come at things with an open mind to listen to public comments, because when we're applying them from the other side, some things were hard. I'd somebody say this rule is really badly written. 
I'm like, well, I wrote that rule. And I think it's really clear. It was a research report rule. That's funny. It's a beautiful release. Like what you're talking about is completely clear. And then he explained to me why it was. And then I was pretty heartbroken. But um, yeah, that was pretty funny. So, and, and, and you worked until 2002, which is just after the dot-com crash. And, and, and there you go from uh, to the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, I had been an intern um, in law school. Um, so funny story, um, my, my really one extreme experience of nepotism, I was my second summer of law school and my uncle was with the Foreign Service um, in the State Department. And um, he called me and said, your mom told me that you're not psyched about your second summer, summer second summer summer job. I'm like, not really. He said, how would you like to work at the UN. And I went into the, you know, I went through the process and I got accepted. So I spent my second summer of law school working at the United Nations. And I met the gentleman who was the head of government affairs for the New York Stock Exchange during that period. And he said, you need to come work for us in our government affairs office. So I ended up going to be an intern at the NYC's government affairs office in DC. And um, when I was ready to leave Skadden because I was working 80 hours a week and I thought I was gonna die, <laughs> he set me up with an interview and I ended up getting a job at the NYC, uh, which was just, again, like this other like miracle job that was just I'm so proud to be associated with that with that company. We were, it was still Dick Grasso as the CEO and chairman. So I kind of lived through the Dick Grasso period and then John Reed. So, so you, you went from London to New York at that point? Went back to New York. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I did one year at SCAD in New York. Mm -hmm. And that's what made me want to leave private practice. Um, it wasn't kind of like a dream job anymore. It's a little bit different, like if you're staying at the Principe de Savoy Hotel in Milan and, and doing beautiful deals in you know Milan and then going to like Kansas. Not not that I know America, but it was quite a different kind of um a kind of different practice. So I thought, let's try something different. Interesting. Okay. And then you, you stay in the New York Stock Exchange from 2002 to 2008 at another financial crisis. So you went from one financial, from Sharvins Oxley, basically to Dodd-Frank, you were in New York Stock me. Exchange. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. So tell us after New York Stock Exchange. So um, I was at the New York Stock Exchange while we went public and I was on the public company readiness team. I, I also was on the pu public company disclosure team. And the same sort of experience where we had written corporate governance rules, we had written all these listing standards, and we became public and had to kind of live them and breathe them. So now I was sort of in a situation where I was helping be the listed company that was listed on the exchange. So I learned a lot from that process. And I ended up having an opportunity to go be the general counsel of a public NASDAQ listed, which people didn't, you know, thought was kind of funny. I went to a NASDAQ listed company. But I went to be the general counsel of a dark pool algorithmic trading company broker dealer called Knifex. It was a had been in business for a long time, um, but it had been acquired by Warburg Pincus about two years before I joined. So they're building out a great team of people and it was my first opportunity to general counsel. So I kind of did that. And when they hired me, they said, we're going to do this for two years. We're going to sell the company. Mm. And so after two years, we sold half the company to the New York stock exchange and half the company BNY Convergex. So, um, it was the first time since I was 14, I did not have a job. Um, mm -hmm. It was wow. crazy and super liberating. And that really changed my life. Um, so after that, you join Second Market. And we, we have to take, we have to talk about the origin story of Second Market because it's really interesting, right? So um, 
when I interviewed at Second Market, you know, I'd just come off all these kind of, you know, high profile kind of jobs, at least in my space. And I met the team there. And um, I remember like the CFO printed out my resume and said, oh, how, how did you come to us? And I said, you know, through a friend. And I wasn't really looking for a job. I was actually taking a year off to travel around the world. And I've been, I mean, I love to travel. And um, I had just gone to Antarctica because I had like a wow. year salary, year healthcare. And I really was just taking a year off and doing nothing. And I told all my friends, I'm not looking for a job. I sort of waxed lyrical during my interview about, I thought they wanted to go public and how excited I was to help take, take the company public and how my background was perfect for that. And they're like, well, we're actually never going public. And I thought, oh, you know, that interview, that interview did not go well. And I went home and I told my boyfriend at the time, I'm like, well, that, thank, you know, at least, I, you know, it's good to have a practice interview. So when they called me three months later and they said, you're on our short list and we want you to meet the CEO, I'm like, wow, that's kind of odd. Um, but I went in and met the CEO and he was just one of those entrepreneurs that had a really strong vision great background. Like he really knew the space. They were trading at that point in time, um, restricted stock of public companies. That's how they got their start. Uh, fixed income products, auction rate securities. They had stepped right in after the auction rate security market meltdown and created a desk to trade those products. And they were looking to trade bankruptcy claims and they were trading limited partnership interests and they were trading, um, you know, kind of anything illiquid. And they just had gotten into trading pre-IPO private company stock. And we were a registered broker dealer and an ATS. Um, and the vision that that the CEOs, Barry Silbert, outlined to me was so compelling that I basically said to him in the interview, like, what do I need to get this job? Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, do you want, you know, recommendations? And I was lucky enough to be friendly with SEC, some SEC commissioners. I said, you could call my mom and dad. Like I really was excited about the job. So he gave me the job. And, um, and then I started it at that point, we were building out a really amazing platform for everything to do with private companies. And I don't know if you remember seeing it, Evan, but like we were pulling data together from every single, about every single private company out there with huge data analytics team. Um, and Barry's view is that we were going to be the center of everything around private companies. So we built up this. So let me let, let me explain for maybe some of the listeners who may have some problem understanding this market. At the time, I remember uh, Facebook was, I think, four or five years old, right? So yeah. in a private market, a, a lot of the employees get paid uh, in stock options. And so the first employees that already vested their shares after four years had this illiquid uh, private shares of Facebook. And I understand that there was one employee who had left the company who had come to Barry Silbert and said, look, I have the this shares. Can I sell these? And it didn't exist, right? A secondary market. And that's what yeah. second market kind of created a new liquidity avenue for private markets. So it's a very important innovation in startups. You're absolutely right. And um there had been block trades before where where if you had unrestricted stock, and I think your point's extremely important for the audience to understand, most employees in private companies get a grant where they walk in the door and that grant vests over a four-year time period. So you have one year till you have like a 25% vest, and then after that it vests in kind of monthly um, intervals until it's fully vested at four years. And at, at this time, in, at this point in time, it was 
fairly typical for a successful private company to go public at like six or seven mm-hmm. years. So employees didn't have a lot of time they needed to wait in order to kind of get liquidity. But the market was shifting and, and it would shift a lot more right after this. And we can talk about our role in the Jobs Act as well. But, you know, a lot of companies were going out and getting no action letters from the SEC saying that certain types of equity grants didn't count at that point in time. The registration threshold was 500 holders of record. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of companies were getting no action letters. So like Google, I think, had gotten a no action letter. Facebook had gotten no action letter. So you didn't have to count certain types of op- of options. You didn't have to count certain types of RSUs. And they were trying really hard not to go public until they wanted to. But Google went public because they went over the 500 shareholder number and, and Facebook subsequently did as well. And so what happened at this time was that, you know, you had more employees with vested equity. That pool was growing. And because most employees, as you said, vast majority of their of their compensation was equity based, we were also seeing a trend where employees were leaving private companies and going to public companies. So people were leaving Facebook engineers and high talent. People were leaving Facebook to go to Google because they could sell their shares at Google. Mm -hmm. And really, that was where the value was of being associated with these firms. So it really was a tipping point. Um, in the industry and a real thing that private companies started thinking about around this point in time. Yeah. And second market became one of the leading players and you spent about five years there and then you, you, you went to NASDAQ private market. So NASDAQ private market was a joint venture between um, Shares Post and NASDAQ. Um, mm-hmm. Shares Post was another broker dealer ATS in the space. And they were trying to create, a, a, I think, you know, part of the thinking from Nasdaq's point of view was a pipeline of pre-IPO companies. So if they did secondary liquidity through Nasdaq private market, this joint venture, then Nasdaq created very good relationships with the management team way before maybe an IPO decision was made. So it was a very smart business decision. Um, they poached me out of second market, and we'll talk about a little bit maybe what second market was doing at the time. Um, so I joined NASDAQ Private Market as the chief strategy officer while it was still a joint venture. And six months later, we acquired the broker dealer that was under second market holdings that was still private company oriented. And we hired that. We took that team and that technology into NASDAQ, collapsed out the joint venture and became a, it came, became a wholly owned subsidiary of NASDAQ um, at the time. Okay. And and yeah, so that, that also shows the maturity of the business in terms of now a major player uh, stock market decides to go into this field of uh, private company shares. And now, by the way, they actually span it off. So now it's a spinoff with other large banks, but but it's uh, it, it has been conducting a lot of these secondary offerings and it's a big part of the market. So, you know, tell us about your time in NASDAQ and then beyond after that. So at NASDAQ, you know, one of the trends that started at second market and um, which was very interesting was companies did not like kind of unfettered trading in their shares, private secondary trading. It had an impact on the price that they issued equity to their employees at. It had an operational impact, a legal impact. Transfer requests would come and have to be dealt with. And what we started at Second Market in, I'd say, 2011, 2012, maybe into 2013, was we shifted from kind of broke buyer-seller matching on the platform to private tender offers. And, and that's where companies got to control 
all the aspects of the transaction. They could they, they identified the buyers. They could set the price that the, that the tender offer would occur at. Almost all the buyers were large institutions that maybe were already on the cap table or wanted to get in and the company didn't want to do another primary round. Um, and they could say to the different buckets of shareholders, because the private tender offer rules are very flexible, like you're an existing employee, you could sell 10% of your vested equity. You're a former employee, you know, it's all or nothing. So you could set different rules around each level of shareholder. And we started that product and um, it took us a while, but we started to get traction when companies started realizing it was a retention tool for their employees, that they would offer liquidity annually or semi-annually. People were more likely to stay. And it goes back to that Facebook mm-hmm. Google conundrum that we saw where people felt like their, their Facebook stock had less value because they couldn't get out of it. And that really changed the dynamic of the market even more because now companies were actually facilitating secondary liquidity in a meaningful way, but in a way that they were very comfortable with. And so NASDAQ private market emulated the same product that we created at second market. Um, and that's still a big part of their business. Um, they also do block trades um, and what we're also seeing in the market. And I don't know if you want to go into trends now, but mm-hmm. the other trend is that um, more international companies want to do direct listings. And so mm-hmm. they use these platforms to help find you know, the requisite stock price that the that the SEC requires before you do a direct listing. So that's kind of how the market morphed through second market and NASDAQ private market uh, while I was at NASDAQ. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and there are a lot of interesting trends here. One of them, which is sort of unrelated, but but you've made me think about it uh, because it's been in the press lately, is this idea that when founders would raise money from venture capital investors, they would do some level of uh, secondaries for themselves. So they would get in the round, let's say, of $100 million. Uh, they would carve out maybe $10 million, $20 million for them personally, which would flip the idea of waiting for liquidity for all. And for example, it was disclosed that Adam Newman at, at WeWork, I think over the years, uh, took out about $500 million in secondaries from the funding rounds and got $500 million from lenders. So he had a billion dollars without even the company having an exit. So that also has been something that is interesting to think about and under a lot of uh, pressure now to revert to older ways. So when we first provided liquidity, there, there was a massive feeling, especially in like venture investors, that nobody should get out until there was an exit, right? Mm-hmm. But that just became became unworkable, and um, because one of the things that happened during this time frame, which I think we've alluded to a little bit, was that we actually at Second Market um, were spending a lot of time in the Hill educating, you know, legislation legislators and regulators about what was happening around private company stock. And I actually spent a lot of time with um, state level reg- securities commissioners and Nassau, the state um, state securities commissioner organization, helping them understand the benefits of secondary liquidity, that it added significant tax you know, impact on communities and states and that the value to employees of being allowed to provide to be provided secondary liquidity, where the state, um, you know, the states had 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 a little experience with that. So we ended up writing with Senator Toomey's staff or helping them draft uh, what became the bill that changed the registration threshold from 500 shareholders to 2,000 shareholders. Mm -hmm. And the initial draft, it excluded out employees and excluded out uh, accredited investors. 
And um, it finally went to the floor as part of the Jobs Act and was you know, passed into law with an exemption for employees. So now it meant that, and this is when the this is when the game really changed after 2012, right? So now you have companies like Facebook and Google who had to go public because they had more than 500 holders. And many of those were employees, right? Many of those 500 were employees. And now you have a situation where you can have up to 2,000 holders and your employees are not counted. And that's when I think secondary trading really exploded because companies were staying private instead of you know five to seven years, 10 years, 12 years, 14 years. And secondary liquidity became critically important mm-hmm. um, as a retention method and, and basically an employment method. Like people would not go to work for a company if they didn't think they were going to get liquidity. So that really changed everything in 2012. Um, and really open the door to the markets that we see today. And the reason that there's 900 unicorns, decacorns, and whatever the next fancy level is after decacorns. But um, yeah, so it's it's it was a very pivotal moment in the space, everything to do with the Jobs Act, right? But that was the most important part to our business. And I think the best, one of the best things that happened for private companies. But any reaction on the idea of founders taking out uh, some part of the funding for themselves? Well, some founders took out part of the funding for themselves, but some in some of those deals, if I remember correctly, there was also an agreement that part of the money raised would be used for these private tender offers. Mm-hmm. So they knew that they were going to be able to give employees liquidity and maybe pare down the cap table a little bit. Um, and venture cap, I started with the idea that venture capital was originally against any liquidity except for an exit. I think the venture concept also changed. Like they wanted founders to stay at companies. They wanted the company to continue to grow. The pressure was off about going public until the company wanted to. So they really wanted management to be happy. They wanted the founders to be happy and they wanted employees to be happy. So we started to see a different, a sea change in the acceptance of liquidity. I can't talk to WeWorks. Like that feels yeah. like a very generous amount of stock to take out. <laughs> um, but, you know, how many shares did he have altogether? So I, I think it was a positive for the market that the liquidity started to become available to the entirety of the company. Yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, one thing is to give an option of a tender to all the employees, and the other is to carve out some of the funding just for the CEO, because that's where you have some conflicts of interest, right? Right, I think so let's let's finish up. You know, you after Nasdaq, you go to Templum, and then now you are in Liquid Advisors. But tell us about the the Templum and your current role. So at Templum, I was the Chief Strategy Officer and General Counsel. It was a broker dealer ATS, and that was a platform that was focused on um, providing um, assistance for private placements and secondary trading again of unregistered private stock, but that would be digitally represented. So digital asset securities. And I think what I started seeing, and I still see a little bit, is the reason that the that the businesses at Second Market, at Nasdaq Private Market, at Share at ShareWorks, and there's others now, Equities on, um, the reason their business developed is that people really wanted to buy what was on the platforms, right? You couldn't generally solicit um, because all these most of these transactions are being done under you know exemptions that don't allow for uh, general solicitation. So you needed a reason for people to come onto your platform and Facebook or you know Uber or WeWorks was a reason for them to come on the platform looking for that available supply. I think the challenge that we still have in the digital asset security space, which I think is shifting a little bit, is what is what's on the platform that's making people want to come buy and sell. And so when I left Templum in 2019, 
I didn't see a compelling um, use case for what we were trading. Again, that's shifting. There are more platforms out there that I think are doing it in a very smart way and identifying asset classes where there actually is real interest and value. But to my mind, I just didn't see in the short term how we were going to achieve something um, like what we achieved at Second Market or NASDAQ Private Market in the digital space. So I ended up leaving Templum in the fall of, 20, of, of 2019 after about a year. Yeah. And tell us about Liquid Advisors. What's your focus there? You know, what, what are you working on? And, you know, then we'll move into other hot topics. So I'm a, I think I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I, I wasn't planning on um, starting my own business, but I, I was at San Francisco Blockchain Week having some breakfast with some friends after uh, I left Templum. And one of them I'd worked with at Nasdaq Private Market and one was a, a lawyer friend. And they basically said, you're going to start your own firm. And I said, what? And I said, no, I, I'm not that entrepreneurial. And literally my friend, and I'll give her a call out, it's Andrea Lamari Walms, one of my most favorite people in the whole world. She's a partner at Manhattan Venture Partners now, very much involved in this space. She literally went on her phone at breakfast and said, it has to be liquid. And she found the URL. She's like, here's the name of your business. <laughs> going to be called Liquid Advisors. <laughs> And just get the URL. We bought the URL at the breakfast table. <laughs> and I flew back to New Jersey um, with an S-Corp that another friend of mine created for me and a URL. And that's sort of how I started. And um, for me, it's been a really great, a really great journey. I've always loved in every aspect of my job, I've always loved like being part of a team, getting stuff done, figuring stuff out. Like that is what I love to do. I didn't want to be a law firm because I think strategy to me is much more interesting and compelling. And so I've done projects with such great clients. I've worked with um, a company called Bitwise Asset Management. This is San Francisco based, helping them get uh, one of their crypto index funds traded in the OTC markets. I've worked with traditional private company um, trading platforms looking to emulate a little bit of what we did at Second Market in a smart, smart, and very technolo technologically forward way. Um, because part of what happened at Second Market is that we morphed to um, the Bitcoin blockchain space. Um, I was really familiar with the structuring of crypto trusts and funds. So that's been a big part of my business is, is helping companies figure that out. So I really have like half of my, half of my clients are in traditional finance, private company market and, and, and similar. And half of my client base is somehow crypto oriented. So, I, I think so, so in the lingo, it, it's half of it is TradFi and then the, the rest is, is DeFi. Or... Well, not DeFi as much as, as non-TradFi, right? Like uh, okay. others, yeah, other <laughs> stuff, yeah. All right. Well, it, you know, th this is great. And obviously you've got uh, so much experience in this field. Let me ask you on private markets. Let's start there, and, and then we'll go in the other half, which is crypto. Recently, one of the SEC commissioners wrote or uh, gave a speech uh, criticizing private markets, going dark, she called it, in October of last year, and questioning whether this is a good thing, right? That And, and you know, one of the recognitions is that the private markets are, are much bigger than public markets, and there's been an enormous rise of private markets. Um, and and a lot of these companies, so unicorns, you said 900 unicorns. Well, it's actually 1,150, right? Like every time you check, there's yeah. more. Uh, yeah. It's almost at, at it's $3.7 trillion. I just checked this morning, CB yeah. Insights, uh, whether that's accurate or not. 
But that's uh, global, right? So that's every global. country, yes, every yes. country in the world. So it's not just the US, right? Yes, yes, yes. And so no matter what metric you use, you know, I don't know, $45 trillion in um, private markets from private equity firms. I mean, it, it is a very, very big market. Uh, and, and she criticized this in, in saying that we have to have regulations that are more transparent, more disclosures. A lot of these unicorns that have kind of burnt we, we all see Theranos and WeWork and others that are high profile. Uh, we don't know what's going on. These boards are not doing much. Uh, what do you think of this criticism and the opportunities in this market? And do you think it needs a different regulatory landscape or some change? Uh, you know, you were part of the Jobs Act, so you have a very uh, good understanding of, of how this has evolved. So I think that in order to answer the question, we need to look at what happened over the same time frame in the U.S. that made it less interesting to become an U.S. IP, an IPO or a public company. And the things that happened in the U.S. over the same time period were Dodd-Frank, Sarbanes-Oxley, um, uh, you know, con conflict mineral disclosure, a massive rise in litigation against public companies, a massive pressure on public companies to kind of, you know, manage to quarterly results, a manage a massive increase in shareholder activism, a significant increase in the cost of DNO insurance, and less compelling public markets. And if you put those next to one another, I think you see a mirror image of why companies are staying private longer why CEOs and founders are expressing the fact that going public wasn't necessarily in the best interest of their shareholders or their employees. Now, I am strongly in favor of becoming a public company. As we talked about, like, it's been half my career geared at that exact goal. And I work with a lot of companies who definitely want to go public, but they want to go public when they want. And things like, you know, um, the current administration at the SEC's climate climate. Um, environmental impact climate disclosure, mm -hmm. which is, I think, getting extremely negative um, responses and comments is just another example of how, at least in my mind, the SEC became much more a place where maybe pet projects on the Hill where people thought, oh, I want to know about conflict minerals, or I want to know about this, or I want to know about that, became part of required disclosure for every company. And when I was the general counsel of the public company, NASDAQ was the public company, NYFEX, we were about a $250 million market cap company. And our costs of being public were substantial. You know, we had to have, um, you know, uh, external auditors that did public company filings with us, law firms. We had to hold shareholder meetings every year. We had to, you know, manage our public company shareholders. We had to pay our directors, uh, you know, pretty significant amounts of public company independent directors get paid a pretty significant amount of money. Mm -hmm. um, and the ben and we, we were sort of thinly traded, right? So you really have to look at why you go public. If you don't need to raise capital, that's a big thing off the table, right? If you don't need to give your employees liquidity, that's a big thing off the table. Um, if you want to run your business the way you want to run your business and you don't want to have to manage to analysts and expectations, that's a real reason not to go public. So I think in the, you know, in the last, you know, however many decades I've been in the space, there's been a, sh a significant sea shift 
from what the SEC was doing before and why companies came to the U.S. and what they're doing now. And I think, you know, we're especially seeing that with international companies, you know, where I started my career, like companies are just not coming to list in the U.S. And one thing that happened, like I was, I started at the New York Stock Exchange the day after Sarbanes-Oxley was enacted. Mm -hmm. And I was in a meeting with the international listing team and the head of international listings, Georges Zhu, one of my favorite people of all times, he said, we need to figure this out. And so we spent almost a year and a half on the road going around the world, talking to listed companies all over, prospect companies all over about the fact that the U.S. wasn't trying to preclude international listings or that international companies didn't have to delist because of this mandatory, you know, independent audit committee requirement where companies in Japan don't have audit committees, companies all over the world don't have audit committees. And so we did some pretty serious meetings with the SEC and some pretty significant comment letters and helped right size that. But that thoughtfulness doesn't always apply anymore, I think, and which is, I think, a, uh, unfortunate. But you know what? Companies have to consider the cost of being public across all those issues with the benefits of staying private. So I, I, that's the analysis I'm saying. Well, that's that's a really interesting view. And, and at some level in Silicon Valley, there was some conventional wisdom of uh, this idea of stay private for longer. If you can raise money in the private markets, you know, don't bother. And, and that was, you know, maybe a decade. Um, but interestingly, in the pandemic, in the last two years, in t- 2020 and 21, uh, there was a lot of new listings, IPOs and SPACs. And we had about a thousand companies go public last yeah. year, which is a complete record. And, and so uh, that kind of flipped. Although now, we are going into a down cycle. And it seems like, you know, a lot of these SPACs seem not to be successful. They're trading under 60%, 70%. A lot of public shareholders probably will get burnt. Yeah. A lot of private companies also, by the way, and we may start seeing new down round financings and wash up financings. What do you make out of uh, the decision Let's take it by 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 piece. Uh, SPACs on one end, and also now the down rounds or dying cycle of the market. Where are we in the current environment? I'd be afraid to guess. I mean, I, I yeah. think companies go public because it's the right time for them to go public. And the fact that there was such a significant surge in IPOs meant that people felt like conditions were favorable. The markets were doing really well. Um, you know, the last thing you want to do is have your company go public and the price drop to some significant discount from your, your, you know, your IPO price. And we were seeing that over and over and over again with some of these really big, you know, unicorn decacorns and lots of other companies. So I think the market conditions were favorable. Companies like to be public right at the end of the day. You do that cost benefit analysis. There's a lot of benefits of being public. Um, and it was the right time to go public. And I think if you have a company that's successful, you want to be public at some point in time. I don't think any of the 1,100 or whatever the number was, you know, worldwide unicorns, I think very few of them will stay private forever. Like what's, there's just no reason to operate as a private company in, you know, in perpetuity. So I I don't know whether we're, there's so many international things happening right now that are impacting the global markets. There's, you know, such terrible things happening um, that nobody could have foreseen. And, you know, the idea that we're on potentially on the brink of, you know, global war in my lifetime just, you know, keeps me awake at night. Um, So there's, I think there's just too much uncertainty. And with SPACs, I think the idea of a SPAC 
was a very good idea. I think many of them were successful, but I think you had a big rush to a huge amount of money wanting to get into these companies pre-IPO. This is a way to do it. Um, and everybody's looking for the big bump up. And maybe some of the companies that were acquired in SPACs weren't ready to go public. I, I don't know. I'm not in that space. So I wouldn't mm. want to I wouldn't want to say anything negative about a space I just don't know about. There's a lot of really good people in the space, in the SPAC space, and trying to do it the right way. But when you start yeah, and, and just you know, as a, as a, getting sued for fa- failure to disclose things, then, you know, it's, that's kind of a t- typical bad, bad behavior, right? Yeah. And, and just as a background, uh, the, there were 248 SPACs raised in, in 2020 that raised $83 billion and 613 SPACs in 2021 that raised $162 billion. So that's a lot of money searching for private companies to merge with. And so uh, now this is hurting. And, and the SEC, again, is kind of looking at this and particularly looking at uh, compensation of sponsors. There are conflicts of interest. You know, Maybe sometimes you have two years to merge with a private company and you're going to merge with whatever company because you got sponsor fees and 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 you may benefit and not not so much the public shareholders. So that's that's interesting. So let's move into crypto. <laughs> you know, th- th- this is one market that uh, maybe for directors they don't understand, but but I think you you have the benefit of having uh, seen the crypto markets evolve a lot. At some point, they reached almost three trillion dollars in market cap. We're down to one point two. Uh, we just had a massive crash of Terra Luna, which is a stable coin that was an algorithmic stable coin. And, and that's kind of shaken the whole market. What can you tell us about the crypto markets? I mean, w- what are your feelings generally? I know it's a very broad question uh, because crypto, you know, there are 15,000 different cryptocurrencies. But, but how do you, you know, for someone who's listening, who's a director of a traditional public company, how should they think about crypto? Because a lot of people are either non-believers and think this is a fraud and scam and it's going to go away, which I would put the majority of people, and then a minority think, well, this is the future, right? And this, like Andreessen says, this is like the new cycle of technology, of computing, right? We, we saw the rise of, of computers, of, of mobile, and now crypto is the next computing cycle. So how would you plainly talk about crypto and think about it from a financial perspective that makes sense? So let's go back to 2012. Facebook goes public. We're looking, we're a trading platform that trades the liquid assets. And my boss comes to me and, and says, I have this great idea. We're going to trade Bitcoin. And I said, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> and, and absolutely not. And so he goes to our board and our board's like, absolutely not. And then by the end of 2012, our board's like, why aren't we in the Bitcoin space yet? And at that point, it was just Bitcoin, right? There wasn't anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we started trading Bitcoin through our broker dealer. And um, and uh, it was a really interesting asset class. Like it's a, techno- it's a very significant technological advancement, right? For record keeping, distributed ledger. So think about like the cap table of a company. Um, when I was at the SEC, you said there was a lot going on with ADR space. Um, I did a lot of work around Russian ADRs in the early 90s. And one of the problems that we had were was that you didn't know for sure if the company's books and records were going to be kept at a way in a way that was consistent with law in the US, or um, you know, we were hearing terrible stories about people, shareholders would go to uh, go to go to a shareholder meeting, they'd be 
barred at the door or the meeting would be held in Siberia or the, you know, <laughs> the books and records, like your name would just be erased in pencil and your shares would disappear. And so we had to put these kind of regulations in place that said, if you were going to be a Russian ADR, that the books and records of the, tr- of the depository bank governed at all times, right? What blockchain does, and blockchain is what Bitcoin is based on and, and all these other types of um, crypto tokens for the most part. It's a it's a way of record keeping that's immutable. So if I buy shares in a company, then the company can never change its shareholder records to, to disadvantage, dis, dis, you know, disadvantage me or disenfranchise me. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing with any type of legal transaction. Once it's re- re- once it's replicated on the blockchain and verified by multiple parties, it's forever. And so the idea of mortgages or property title or manufacturing um, supply chains or banking, all of these places are areas where that technology is going to revolutionize the way that record keeping occurs and the way that transactions happen. So that's kind of a premise that I think people need to understand is directly correlated with with Bitcoin, with Ethereum, with other types of crypto currencies. So we started trading Bitcoin in 2012, 2013. In 2013, end of 2013, Barry says to me, what else can we be doing? And we had worked not just on the 12G part of the Jobs Act bill, we had worked in the general solicitation part of the Jobs Act bill. And I said, well, the Winklevoss brothers at that point in time had filed for a Bitcoin ETF. And I said, that's going nowhere. He's like, all right, well, what else can we do? I said, why don't we do, and I'm not a fund lawyer, right? I'm a corporate capital markets lawyer. I said, why would we do like a fund and we could generally solicit? So we went out and hired Sidley Austin, some friends of mine who have been at Skadden, and we created this trust structure for a single asset crypto fund. And that was at that point in time called the Bitcoin Investment Trust. And ultimately we created an asset management business around that, that's Grayscale Asset Management. We changed our broker dealer from second market to Genesis trading and second market holdings became digital currency groups. So the whole entire business morphed into the blockchain digital space. And so, I look at that now and I think at one point like GBTC was worth like 30 plus billion dollars, right? And they have a multiples of other amazing ETF and, and private fund products. And, you know, the majority of my planet thinks that crypto and blockchain are here to stay. I, I work with a lot of companies that are building blockchain into solutions. So I'm on the advisory boards of companies that are building blockchain into settlement and blockchain into um, record keeping books. I'm on the advisory board of a company called Estrella, which is a cap, uh, a blockchain-based cap table management product. You don't even know it's blockchain. It's just this mm-hmm. really great block- cap table management product that happens not to be built on, you know, Excel spreadsheets or however else we used to do uncertificated share ownership. So it's really revolutionizing how broker-dealers will interact with one another. It's going to allow for kind of instantaneous settlement instead of we're at T plus one, like why not be T plus now? And mm-hmm. it really is revolutionizing how transactions will settle, how contracts are are, are uh, reflected and how you actually reflect things that you own. So I'm a huge supporter of blockchain crypto. I think there are a lot of projects. You said there's 15,000 tokens. I mean, are all of them viable projects that people should be investing in? Absolutely not. Um, but there are a lot of good projects and a lot of good people behind the projects and um, a lot of very smart people putting a lot of time into the space. So I think back in 2013, 2014, when we were trading Bitcoin and we went around to 
every you know bank on the street and said, "Are you interested in digital assets?" Are you? And we were like, people would just laugh at us and say, "You're completely mm. crazy. This is going nowhere." And you know, um, now all of them have crypto trading desks. Almost all of them have investment funds in crypto, or they're starting to let investors into the crypto space. Fidelity is approving you know, Bitcoin investments for their 401k plan um, clients. So we've morphed from it was kind of just kind of tech people to kind of some crazy people to, you know, mainstream. more mainstream to like really institutional pickup. So, you know, I bought Bitcoin in 2012 at $99. Most of the, my, most of the people on the second market team bought at much lower intervals. And one of my colleagues would come in and said, oh, I have enough to buy a scooter today. And then he'd come back and go, I can buy a Kia and then he could buy like a Toyota and he's like, I'm at Lamborghini phase. And I'm like, oh my God, I hate you. And then, you know, went up to 1200 and it crashed back down. So I've been through so many ups and downs of the price that I don't really get phased by it. I don't invest in, um, I don't invest in things with money I can't afford to lose. Um, I had lost my home in uh, 20, uh, in uh, Hurricane Sandy, my house flooded. And I sold my Bitcoin to build my new house. And so I'm like, wow. oh, well, okay, this is my house that, you know, Bitcoin helped build. And I say to people, there's, you know, people are, hold it forever. I'm like, yeah, hold it forever if you can afford to if do it. Can, right. But yeah. if you get a 400% upcrease or a 1,000% upcrease, like that's a pretty damn good you know, return. Like sell some of it and pay off your loans or, you know, help buy a house. So, you know, I, I don't look at it. It's the best performing asset class of any asset class you can invest in over over the past 10 years. And, you know, I don't think people can keep ignoring it. Um, I think boards need to think about the fact that more and more public companies are getting into the space or holding Bitcoin on their balance sheets um, as an asset that's very important to be considering. Our board, like I said, said absolutely not. And then a year later, we're saying, how come you're not in it? I think more boards I think if you come at it with an open mind and you make sure that the the way that you enter into the space is right for you and for the companies that you're working with, um, I think education is a huge part of it. I just came back from uh, DC Blockchain Summit 2022. One of my clients is the Chamber of Digital Commerce. So I spent a lot of my time working on policy in the blockchain space and working with regulators like the SEC and the CFTC and legislators on the Hill to help direct the best way to do this. And I feel it's almost like another Jobs Act moment where there's going to be a, a suite of bills that kind of say, here's where the lines are. Like, how do you figure out, are you a security? Are you a commodity? Because there's still a huge amount of gray. Mm -hmm. um, Property, so, right. Yeah. So I think, I think some of that's purposeful, uh, honestly, on the SEC's behalf. I think they want there to be a lot of grace. So they could try to regulate as much as the market as they want to, even if things aren't necessarily securities. Um, but I think that'll shift. Well, let me ask you the final question before before we go into the rapid fire questions. Uh, obviously, the, the regulatory aspect of crypto is huge. Biden issued an executive order here in California. Governor Newsom issued an executive order. Uh, a lot of states have been regulating crypto, like Wyoming and others are fomenting crypto in their states, Florida and others. The SEC just added a bunch of lawyers on the prosecution enforcement side. Um, and, and so what, what, what is your take on the regulatory side of crypto? Obviously, this is, this is a massive part of whether it stays or maybe other countries get uh, pushed into more innovation. It stays in the United States. 
as an insider and, and expert in, in these matters, uh, what are your thoughts on the regulatory side of, of crypto? I think the market has been begging for clear regulation for a long time. And I think that the states have stepped up where some federal agencies weren't willing to say, you know, how do you bank these assets? How do you custody these assets? How do you regulate these assets? So, for example, you mentioned Wyoming, like they created a, a banking charter that allows banks to hold, you know, crypto assets on behalf of customers and also actually bank blockchain companies. It's a little bit like the cannabis space where you actually couldn't get a bank account mm-hmm. in the U.S. It was one of these problematic industries, and that's definitely shifted. You talked about Florida, like Miami, um, Mayor Suarez in, in Miami is creating a very welcoming environment for crypto innovators. And these are companies that hire a lot of people. I mean, these are great companies for communities. Um, it's one of the fastest growing, I would probably say, you know, industry groups out there, if it isn't the fastest and it's hiring a lot of people. Um, so he wants Miami to be a place that um, people feel safe and comfortable. And you can see, like I went to Bitcoin 2022 this year, there are 25,000 people attended the conference in Miami. Wow. And a lot of them moved there. A lot of them have moved to Miami. A lot of my law firm friends are in Miami now, um, or they're in places where it's you know a little bit more friendly. I think you can't, you know, can't compare that to like New York, State, like in 2014, 2015, they passed the New York Bit License, uh, which made it almost impossible to create a startup in New York City that was involved in the space. Um, And I think they saw an outflow of companies away from New York in the space, and now they're trying to get them back. Not that it's not good regulation, but I don't think it was right-sized for the industry. And what's interesting is that, you know, Crypto is a very small, nascent industry. And for the SEC to be doubling like its enforcement focus on this industry when there's tons of, unfortunately, tons of financial fraud. I mean, you talked about WeWorks and others that blew up as private companies. Well, what about Enron and WorldCom that were public companies, right? Bernie Madoff, like there's a lot of bad stuff happening in the public markets that also requires their focus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, what we've been working towards at the chamber and with other parts of my business is helping create a framework that is clear. Like what is a security? What is a commodity? What is a stable coin? What agencies regulate that? I think that's the goal of the white house executive order, especially with banks to help around stable coins. Like what is this product? Um, How could it be a security if you have a a dollar backed, you know, stable coin, like it's literally backed by us dollar and, and, I think the non-algorithmic stablecoins are holding, you know, dollars in reserve. And so the house out of security. So I think there's still a lot of gray in the lines. And I think we'll see, I think because of Terra Luna, we're going to see maybe some reactive legislation regulation, which I think is the wrong way to do things. Or, you know, one thing we're probably having with the SEC is they're not actually proposing rules. They're doing non-binding guidance or enforcement action or, they might drop the word digital assets into a 500 page you know, rule proposal that has nothing to do with the digital asset space and you don't know how to apply it. So, you know, I have great faith in the SEC. I really hope that they're going to step up and do a better job here. But it is a very difficult um, space to maneuver from a legal and regulatory point of view as a result of, you know, this kind of lack of lack of clear jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, I, I could be uh, talking to you for hours in this space because it's such a, a fascinating uh, side of things. 
But let's move into the rapid fire questions. Uh, okay. What are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Uh, the Hobbit, uh, Lord of the Rings, and Harry Potter, all the Harry Potter books. <laughs> okay. I like it. Uh, that's great. Who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? So I think that my, you know, my, my mentors were the two people I worked with at the SEC, Rich Kosnick and Paul Dudek, who basically told me, get out of the SEC, spread your wings and go do something else. Um, George Juju at the New York Stock Exchange, who really, really opened up my career in a really good way. And then um, Commissioner Rick Roberts, who was on the board of Nifix, which is that public company I was working with, who's just just such a great mentor, always helped me, always was willing to listen to me brainstorm about where I should go. He actually was very helpful for me when I decided to kind of change the entire trajectory of my life and go to second market and go to the private company side. And so he's somebody I hold very dear to my heart. That's great. Um, and are there any quotes that you think of often or live your life by? I, I've always lived my life with the idea that there's nothing to nothing to be afraid of if you jump off a cliff, as long as you know you have a safety net. So my family's always been my safety net. My mom and dad always told us we could do whatever we wanted in our entire lives and be brave. And so I've jumped off a lot of career cliffs, not understanding like what exactly I was doing, knowing that my family was always there for me, no matter where, how it went. And I've always been really grateful that I have that confidence to take on brand new things and know that I'll learn and be able to handle it. So um, that that's kind of how I live my life. That's great. And what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? And I love a travel and I'm absurd about it because um, I, I am like a junkie. And so um, one of the things I started last summer, which is kind of funny to do in a global pandemic, but I did was I kind of decided to really remote work for the month of August. <laughs> And so I went to Africa and the Middle East. And then this summer, I'm going back to Africa. And I'll just go to, you know, a lot of different unusual countries and hang out and, you know, meet people and have interesting experiences. And I'll do my work remote. So I'm, I'm an absurd travel junkie. It must have been hard in 2020 and 21, right? What was really interesting was that there were very few tourists. So you got to go places that you normally couldn't go without a lot of pre, you know, mm. pre-booking. So um, I got vaccinated in March. I called my best friend. I'm like, we're going somewhere. She's like, okay. And so we went to the Galapagos. And normally you have to book those kind of trips a year and then mm. half in advance. We got on a boat, got booked on a boat two weeks before we went. And like a magical experience with very few people, almost no other boats. I felt terrible for Ecuador because the tourism rate is so important to them then. But just a, like a magical experience of being someplace where nobody else had been for a couple of years the wildlife was so much more. Uh, okay, now that you say this, okay. what, is, what is your favorite city in the world? Oh. What is your fav favorite beach in the world? And, and, or, and what is your favorite country to visit? I suppose you, you, you've been all over, so maybe you have special picks. Um, I think that my favorite city in the world is, um, it's a toss-up. I really love Paris. You know, I lived in London for nine years. I feel like, or five for five years, I feel like London is another home. Um, I love, um, I loved Quito in Ecuador. I love Buenos Aires. Uh, I like, I, I really like um, Southeast Asia. So I really like Kuala Lumpur. Um, so I think that if I could pick one from every continent, mm -hmm. that would be more comfortable than just saying I have one. Yeah.
Um, I live at the Jersey Shore, so I think my favorite beach is right outside my house because it's home. Um, I'm not a beach person so much, but uh, I've been to some beautiful beaches around the world. Uh, and then what was the other one? Beaches, cu country? Country to visit. Yeah, that's sort of the same as, as you've just said. So. so my goal for 2022 was to hit 100 UN countries. Um, I'm, I don't think I'm going to make it, but I... I was originally trying really hard to join a company called the Traveler Century Club, which allows you to join when you've been to a hundred unique countries, jurisdictions, territories, and there's 300 and something on the list. So I hit that number. I hit a hundred of those um, about four years ago, and now I'm trying to get to 150 of those. So trying to get to a hundred wow. UN countries this year, I think I'm going to hit 95. And I'll probably hit maybe like 140 on the Travel Century Club list. So my life goal is to is is to go to all 193 UN countries, but I don't I don't know if I'll make that. But that's my goal. Wow, that's nice. That's and, and it's ambitious because typically people have a goal of all the states in the US, right? All the national parks, but you have like global, all the UN countries. I like I like that. Okay, final question: Which living person do you most admire? You know, I think that for me, um, and and she's recently passed, so I'm still going to count her because she influences me every single day, but it was my mom. Um, she was a brilliant woman. Her My grandfather didn't think that women should go to college, so my mother got a full scholarship and went to college. Um, she wanted to be a market dire marketing director, but she also got an education degree, so she went to Selma, Alabama, during the height of the civil rights um, um, movement and taught uh, black kids illegally in the bottom of a church. Um, she was intrepid. She raised four kids and got a master's. And she was the director of marketing of a huge hospital, a couple of big hospitals in our area. And she always said to me, just go. Hmm. Be brave. So, well, that's great. And... Uh... Emery, thank you so much for doing this. This was so fun. Oh. We did go over the hour mark, but uh, I feel like we could have gone another hour. Uh, but thank you so much. I'm sure a lot of people uh, will appreciate your thoughts, both in the private markets and crypto. I, I feel uh, that a lot of people struggle with this, but there is a future here. And as you very well described, there's a lot of talent uh, moving into these markets. There's a lot of new products and new uh, markets uh, forming around this. So it was great to have you, and hopefully we'll we'll get to meet again. I hope so too. I absolutely love San Francisco, so that's another one of my favorite cities. So I'm not just internationally focused. Thank you. All right. So this is Thank really you. Fun. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.